Not long ago, there were only three television channels, and the cheaply made family man comedy was king. Turning the dial would only give you another glimpse into a suburban nuclear family with a breadwinner husband, a stay-at-home wife, and the occasional talking horse. That is, until 1964, when one show dared to take a glimpse into the lives of terrible monsters that lived next door. The Monsters premiered that September, and, well, America has yet to recover. The Monster Hunter shuns the millions of hours of original shows that are available at the press of a button to take a look back at a 60-year-old comedy about a Frankenstein monster and his grotesque family. He, he reaches down, he just grabs her by the butt and lifts her up. Yep. Yeah. Instead of opening the window... He punches through the window, which, I mean, this is your damn window, man. By the way, he's trying to catch uh, the raven out of the the clock. Oh, is that yeah. what he's doing to feed the cat? Yeah. yeah. I was very disinterested, to be honest. <laughs> the Monster Hunters, available every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Mouse. I'm Weens. <laughs> we have the Mouse and Weens podcast. Mouse and Weens. I'm a big sister in San Diego with kids, and I'm married. And I have uh, no friends. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. No, I do. I have friends. I just don't have any boyfriends or love. <laughs> anyway, Mouse and Weens podcast. You just listen to it. Yeah, it's, it's not really depressing. Fun. We talk about family stories, life, and love, and kids, and all the things you're interested in. We promise. Yay! Celebrities in Hollywood too. Poke your little turtle head out and come listen to us. <laughs> Mouse and Weens. Bye. You must leave within two days. Hal, who is sending this? I'm sorry, Doctor Floyd. I don't know. Well, tell whoever it is that I can't take any of this seriously unless I know who I'm talking to. The response is, I was David Bowman. I can't accept that identification without proof. It is important that you believe me. Look behind you. Look behind me? Please, Dr. Floyd. It's important. All right. Hey. There's nothing there. Ha ha ha, Dr. Floyd. Made you look. And, and scene. Hello, and welcome to The Picture Show with Austin and Phil Rude. I am Phil Rude. I'm the dad. And I'm Austin Rude, and I'm the son. Every week uh, this season, we watch a sci-fi movie, and then we talk about it on mic. That's right. That is what we do. Welcome. And here we are to do that. How's your week been, Dad? Uh, it's been all right. I've, uh, you know, watched a movie. Mm-hmm. As we do. As we do. Watched a couple of things. Um, uh, they got some things moving in my personal life. I don't think I need to get into all that here. Uh, or my professional life, I should that's say. That's right. You've taken after Walter White, correct? Uh, that's right. Yep. I bought an RV and mm -hmm. uh, now cooking in the desert. Actually, I have been watching Better Call Saul. We are down to the last two episodes. Pretty exciting. Have uh, they had that cameo yet? Yes. Uh, happened last week. Everyone's been talking about it. Everyone has been talking about it, um, and it was fine. That's what I'll say. 
Was it just kind of fan service or was there like I, substance? There was a little bit of substance. They were, there was a parallel they were showing, but it felt more fan servicey to me than anything, which is fine. I love these characters. I'm happy to see them. Uh, they tied it back in. My only complaint is that it is like 12 to 14 years past when this was supposed to, you know, when this originally aired. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Walter and uh, uh, Brian Cranston and and Bob Odenkirk, you know, are the same because they were older when this was shot. Yes. Aaron Paul was, you know, probably in his late 20s or early 30s playing early 20s. And now Aaron Paul is somewhere in his 40s. And like that's a marked age difference. Mm -hmm. And Aaron Paul is noticeably older. Like he's not pulling off. I, early twenties, but I, I, it's that is a minor complaint. It's great to see, I love Aaron Paul. I think he's he's great, and uh, it's great to see him playing Jesse again. Okay, in the I, same way, like uh, the El Camino movie. I didn't think the El Camino movie was great, but I didn't care because it was also spending time with a character that I enjoyed. It's a return to that. World. It's a it's a return to just you know touching base with a character that you like spending time with, and it's well executed enough. I I was scrolling through articles and I did see one pop up that said uh, it was the director of Better Call Saul, or maybe that specific episode mm-hmm. talking about uh, the the title said why they didn't de age oh. the actors. Oh, I would have hated it if uh, they did that like that. Always looks bad. You yeah, know? so yeah. I'm, I'm just wondering now the reason. How I have to go back and find uh, that Oh, article. yeah. I don't... I mean, I've, I saw people talking about that, but I'm also like, eh, no, you don't need to de-age him. Like, we, I understand he's gotten older and this was filmed now and not back then. Right. Does, like, does it shatter the illusion no, it, it, of the I mean, the it's, a, it's a little bit distracting, but, like, the point of the scene was still there and, mm-hmm. and he's still very much playing jesse pinkman so it was imagine they know. recast the act some right. actress we've never <laughs> like, seen before it's like aaron paul's younger brother you know like <laughs> yo yo but yo. he's like really bad <laughs> so no it was it was fine um aside from that i did want to uh shout out i know i have something different in the show doc but i am going to shout out a uh something else i did watch that i wanted to highlight it's an older documentary i think it's from 2008 and it's called Gonzo, and it is on Amazon Prime right now. I don't know how long it's going to be there. It is a documentary about Hunter S. Thompson and his life and his work, largely his work alongside politics. A lot of it, it gets into like his personal life and his bigger professional life, but a lot of it is focused on uh, his writing about politics, his uh, involvement in the, the 72 election, his relationships with like Nixon and Jimmy Carter. Um, and it, it, this movie came out in, uh, it was after he was dead. He died in 05. Um, right after like the, the Bush, the second Bush term started. And it is highlighting a lot of the parallels between when he started writing about Nixon in the Vietnam era. And this point we were at when the documentary was made, where George W. Bush had taken us into Iraq. And right. a lot of this thing, you know, and and it's a lot of, hey, here we are in 08, this started, 
back in, you know, the 60s. Um, and now here we are again, like 14 years later going, oh, we're even further down. Like it's blown up even more. But a lot of it was like, I was watching, uh, I was watching it last night and just like some of the things that were being said and written about by Thompson in 72, I'm like, that is super relevant now. Like he wrote that 50, literally 50 years ago. Yeah. He, he wrote this. And it's it's one of the, it, it's a very interesting. It's a little this can like trigger you, it can enrage you to go. Oh, we've had zero progress here, but it's also important to go th- to look at it and, and realize like I, I think I think something like this is good to look at and go. Oh, this is not the problem of uh, Trump or McConnell. This is a systemic problem where we're not making progress. You know, like this yeah. is this is bigger than the last presidential term and, or and something like that. Going back in history, it's mm-hmm. kind of cool to to see you can track things mm-hmm. uh like that. And there there's small progress made and you can kind of see Sure. It, yeah. Uh, uh, I mean what's helpful in fixing this problem. Right. Um it it, it is I'm not I'm not going to, you know, say it's a complete lost cause, but it it just it's an interesting Angle. I've I'd seen the documentary before. It's a little. I looked at. I watched it with a little different angle, more focused on the politics and the history of the politics of this country, mm-hmm. and where where we were and where we are, and how that's not that far apart. But also, it's a great document about Hunter Thompson and his life and kind of his outlook. He was a very very interesting guy. I have uh, I've been a big fan for a long time. I I think he writes wonderfully and he lived a really really interesting life it's uh it's darkly he's a darkly funny character but i think he was i think he was a manic depressive Mm -hmm. i I mean honestly i don't think he was a very happy guy at all he he sounds like kind of crazy like Uh, he had a lot of problems he's a very manic personality i i know very little about him but everything i learn about him uh, makes me think it's like in a video game when you're trying to complete every side quest. I, I feel like his life, it's like, oh, he joined a biker gang and he wrote about Vietnam sure. and he did all this crazy stuff in L.A. Like, I, it, it, everything I learn about him, I'm like, oh, that's a really weird extra chapter a strange to add guy. to yeah. this uh, he's, a, he's a really interesting guy and... um. Uh, wrote for Rolling Stone for most of his career, and uh, uh, just uh, just a, a, a real unique uh, character in not only in American literature, I think, just in in the world in general, you know. And uh, there's yeah. there's I want to say like two or three documentaries about Thompson that float around. Breakfast with Hunter is another one. I have it on a disc somewhere around here, and uh, I know there's at least one more. Uh, he was just that fascinating of a guy. I think people wanted to kind of document him and try and try and figure him out. But right. uh, yeah, yeah, really cool. And it cover uh, this one also covers like he ran for sheriff of uh, of the county he lived in in Colorado, uh, just sort of to in a very like what we see now is like what Vermin Supreme does of like I'm going to highlight how ridiculous this whole process yes. is. He went to do it to kind of show like outsiders 
really don't stand a chance, even if they want to come in and, and have some interest. If you have interesting ideas and things like that, you will get shut out. And it, it just sort of like uh, a really kind of interesting early stunt in American politics. I, I respect that when For someone sure. yeah. does that to kind of show the flaws in these systems we take for granted. I love Vermin Supreme for the same reason. I think he, he does some really interesting kind of performance art that's politically motivated. That's right. Free toothbrushes for everyone. Free ponies. Free ponies, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Sorry, it's mandatory toothbrushing Mandatory laws. toothbrushing and free ponies. And uh, and we'll sprinkle glitter on you and make you gay. <laughs> like, that's what happened to me, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't talk about it a lot, well, but... You know. He's doing the Lord's work. What about you? What have you been up to this week? Uh, well, this is more than just this week, but I've been on a bit of a Hunger Games reawakening, um, which is interesting. I, I rewatched all of the uh, movies this summer, and, you know, I've I've been reading on and off this year, better than last year. Last year, I didn't read a whole lot. Yeah. Uh, but I've been trying to read more, and... So I'm currently reading the prequel to The Hunger Games, uh, which is called uh, The Songbird and the Snake. I thought it was like the appetite contest or, you know, it's like not quite The Hunger Games yeah, yet. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's the appetizer, the dessert, <laughs> all that. Um, no, but I'm reading the prequel. I'm I'm going to read the, the trilogy after that, reread it, but... Uh, I'm finding it, like, really interesting how, I I guess, back when it was still coming out, it was, like, Hunger Games craze, uh, and these are YA novels, so right. everyone's, like, obsessed with, like, the love triangle aspect of it, but I'm watching these movies and reading these books, and I'm like, this is horrifying. This is, like, a truly right. dystopian yeah. uh, allegory. <laughs> I mean... It's it's spelled out. Uh, the Hunger Games takes place in North America after uh, you know some global catastrophe and climate change happens, uh, and the Hunger Games literally starts on the Fourth of July. So some of these allegories aren't super subtle, uh, but like nor do they have to be. They they don't have to be, and I feel like the message really hits home, uh, and it has a lot to say politically. Uh, and it inspired like a whole genre of dystopian young adult novels, but like, I feel like those are kind of cheap. They pale in comparison to what is really, I think like a masterclass of like how to teach people an inv a valuable lesson. Sure. So <clears throat> do yeah. you think, do you think the horrifying aspect stood out to you more, um, since you've watched squid games or squid game uh in between your last viewing of it or your last reading of it and now where that is more focused on like the idea of and i i have not seen either i saw the first hunger games movie okay that's it i haven't read the books i haven't watched squid game yet everyone's watched no i'm just kidding i, I know a lot uh, of people have I, it, and it's not like a Judgment. I, it sounds interesting, but like, uh, I feel like Squid Game seemed like it was more focused on like just the horrific idea of people killing each other for the entertainment of others. 
And I feel like Hunger Games is more focused on, like, it gets into, like, a bigger war. Mm-hmm. It's not just about the Hunger Games at a, at a certain point, right? Yeah. Um, I, I think it's interesting. Uh, I, I think mainly I'm re... I'm seeing the series in a different light because I'm older and I can sure. kind of see yeah, that all, all of this background and lore and subtext that adds to the point that Suzanne Collins is making as opposed to just focusing on the love story. Uh, Squid Games is interesting because it focuses more on like, these people are poor, they're financially ruined, and they're using, they're manipulating people with this game in order to entertain that like all these people need the money uh hunger games Mm. they use the game the games as fear to instill fear in society and uh a lot of the series deals with war and um kind of oppression and how that takes place in like bigger ideas uh like there's this whole idea of um there's one really powerful scene where he asks, like, uh, why don't we just round up 24 kids and kill them every year? What? Why is there a game? Why right. is there a winner? Right. And how that kind of instills hope in people, but also when that hope fails, when the person they're rooting for dies, when their child dies, uh, it further crushes them down and they're not willing to stand up. Right. So... Interesting. Yeah. Anyway, right. The Hunger Games. Hunger Games. It's cool. a masterpiece. All right. Strong, strong words. That's strong funny. endorsement. <laughs> uh, but that's not what we watched for the show this week. Uh, we watched our first sequel, not counting the trilogy season, like I said. Like, that's right. This of, is our of first official sequel. Uh, first uh, sequel to a movie we watched very early in our podcast. Uh, and this week we set out... To find out what happened after the giant crazy space baby. (laughs) We watched the 1984 sci-fi film 2010, The Year We Make Contact. This movie follows a joint U.S.-Russian mission to Jupiter as they investigate what happened to Dave, Hal, and the rest of the gang from the Discovery in 2001, all while dealing with Cold War tensions brought on by the actions of their respective governments. This film stars Roy Scheider as Dr. Haywood Floyd, John Lithgow as Dr. Kernow, Helen Mirren as Tanya Kernick, uh, Bob Balaban as Dr. Chandra, Elia Baskin as Max Brajalovsky, and Kier Dulia is representing, or I'm sorry, reprising his role as Dave Bowman. The movie was directed by Peter Himes and written by Peter Himes based on the novel by Arthur C. Clarke. And I just want to take a point, to, uh, a minute to point out Peter Himes and his directorial career because I think it's really interesting. In addition to this movie, he did uh, a movie in the 90s, a monster movie. In addition to this movie, he did a monster movie in the 90s called The Relic. Uh, He did a couple of Van Damme movies. He did uh, one called Time Cop, which is kind of, uh, it's a more of a studio, bigger budget uh, Van Damme 
action movie uh, mm -hmm. about a cop who travels through time. And it's kind of schlocky B-movie. Dad, but that's called Doctor Who. It's kind of Doctor <laughs> Who-ish. It's kind of a fun movie. Uh, he did another one called Outland, 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 uh, with Sean Connery. He did this movie, and he did a movie that um, TV's Travis and I both regard as maybe the best buddy cop movie, and that's a movie with Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines called Running Scared. Uh, mm. It's a great, uh, just super fun 80s cop movie. Uh, Jimmy Smits is in it as like the bad guy. Uh, just a really fun movie. And it all stood out to me because uh, Peter Himes is, he's kind of this director who has done a lot of things you have heard of, but he's not like held up in the same way that like, uh, He's not like an auteur director, you know what I mean? Sure. Like he's not like a Scorsese or a, a, a John Singleton even, or a, a Tarantino. I, I, I don't know, Spielberg, Zemeckis, these kind of directors of his day that were kind of becoming big name directors. Uh, he doesn't really have like a franchise or anything like that. He's just mm -hmm. sort of like this working class director who's done a lot of kind of middle of the road movies and then just some really kind of interesting projects. I think I think it's really interesting to look at his filmography and and understand you know kind of uh put it in context of like what these movies are. The Presidio, Narrow Margin, these kind of thriller not quite action movie, kind of suspense action kind of things. End of Days with Schwarzenegger about like uh, uh, the return of Satan, you know, and, 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 you know, coming back and, and being the end of days, the start of revelation, uh, just some kind of weird movies that are pretty well regarded in a lot of ways. I've honestly not heard of any of those. Uh, th this is the first movie of his that I've heard of or seen, Yeah, but he does have like a a big discography like he's he's done a lot of stuff yeah um i would say like his heyday was probably 80s and 90 a lot of stuff in the 90s i think was a little bit bigger budget um and it's sort of in the same way i saw a a i'm gonna have to look him up right now um i saw a video about another director i think it was like royal ocean film society on on youtube um, did a, did a video about the career of, let me find it, let me find it, Joe Johnston. Joe Johnston directed the first Captain America movie. He directed The Rocketeer. Have you ever seen The Rocketeer? I, yeah. Um, he has all these, uh, kind of interesting credits where it's like he's again not like this standout director that every like not like a household name, but he's done movies you have heard of, or at least that were on the map in their day. I would I would well say well regarded. I would say Peter Peter Himes. A lot of those movies that I listed, you have not heard of them, but if you had been around in the '90s and in the '80s, you would go, "Oh, I remember that movie," or "I remember when that movie came out." You would like you would be familiar. Yeah. 
with the title. They're not like movies that are timeless that have, you know, come into the modern age. People aren't going like, oh, yeah, let's watch Relic. But if you watched Relic, you'd be like, well, this is kind of a fun monster movie. Like, I can see why people watch this when it came out, you know, but sure. it's just not like, it, it's just, I, I I think it's really interesting to, to find a director who's doing work. He, he works, he puts stuff out, people enjoy it. Uh, but for some reason, he doesn't like stand out and his movies don't really come forward. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean... I don't know. I'm I'm just thinking it's safe to say this movie isn't a masterpiece. So I Okay. M- maybe I'm harsh, but no. I No, no. I I I think I mean that's maybe the point I'm getting at is he did a lot of movies that were I'll say good enough. Uh-huh. They were good enough. They were good for their day. They're just not like either wholly original. I would argue like Running Scared, crazy fun movie. But it's been overshadowed by 48 Hours, by Lethal Weapon, by a mm. hundred other buddy cop movies. Even like those Jackie Chan ones, uh, <clears throat> Rush Hour, that came out in the 90s. Like, these other more big budget buddy cop movies came and kind of overshadowed that one. So, like, I feel like there were a lot of movies he did that were fun and good. But like, like the relic came out around the same time that Mimic came out, and that's a Guillermo del Toro movie, and I feel like that one sort of blew up a little bit bigger. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. <clears throat> but yeah, no, I mean we can talk about like the quality of these movies, and I don't think he's this guy. The stuff I've seen, it's not been bad. It's fun. It knows what it is. Everything he's done, like I think what Running Scared has over every other buddy cop movie. I'm going to turn this into a running scared podcast <laughs> is that running scared understands that it's silly and that it's fun and it's, they lean in on the comedy. Whereas everything else is like, we're cops and we're taking this really seriously. We're going to have some comedy to relieve the tension, but we're, we're real serious about and, and running scared is just like, no, no, no. Like this is just crazy nonsense. Yeah. That, and, a a and, good genre yeah, movie. Yeah. And, and to have like Billy Crystal and Gregory Hines, they're not like these, these crazy like Superman cops. It's not like Schwarzenegger and stuff like that. They're just these regular guys who are having fun. Um, but yeah, let's let's talk about the quality of uh, this movie. Let's, let's bring it back to this movie that we actually reviewed for the podcast. Can I say, uh, like, on its own, I think this is a decent movie. Maybe even a good movie. As a sequel to a beloved masterpiece it i i don't think it holds up as well interesting that's that's just my initial take i would almost argue the opposite i feel like this works in service of a sequel to 2001 because i think some of the most interesting parts of it have to do with continuing that story Whereas as a standalone movie, I feel like this movie suffers. Like, as a movie unto itself, I feel like the pacing is bad. I feel like there's a lot of empty space where nothing is happening. Um, And I feel like it's more of a procedural, which isn't the interesting part of the story. You know, like, focusing on how we're going to slow down in the environment. And I'm going to take five minutes to explain it to you. 
how we're going to use the atmosphere to slow the rocket, you know, to slow the spaceship down and, uh, you know, and then we're going to actually do it, even though I just explained it. So we're going to do this again and it's going to be another 10 minutes. And it's like, none of this is the interesting part of figuring out what the monolith is, what happened to Hal and Ghost Dave, you know, like that's and, and so like on its own i kind of feel like this movie suffers but the parts where they were continuing the story i felt like were pretty good i i do think it's a good continuation uh i i guess i'm more talking like the the movie's like language kind of like the 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 way it's written and how it looks like okay i i just think 2001 was maybe done better it, it performed its oh i think task. it was definitely done better yeah. I, I i don't think if we're gonna just talk about as a, in a comparison to 2001 this yeah this pales in comparison i mean like uh, i i i don't even know where to start about how much less interesting this is than uh 2001 about how i think it's not executed as well i don't think the visuals are as good Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, I, I don't, I mean, it just all over the, in, in, by every metric, this is a worse movie than 2001, but also my bar 2001 is way up here. You know what I mean? Yeah. No one can it's... see me. I'm holding my arm as high <laughs> up as I can go. I th- I think 2001 is a, a brilliant movie. Uh, I, I think I said on here. A couple weeks ago, I've I've watched it again recently, mm-hmm. and it's another one of uh, Kubrick has this thing for me, and I think it's probably been this way with every Kubrick movie I've seen, where the more I watch a movie of his, the more I like it. It's like every every viewing opens up another door. You know what I mean? Like The Shining. Uh, even like Full Metal Jacket, which appears to be just like a standard Vietnam movie. The more you watch it, the more you realize like, oh, this thing is like, there's angles to this. Yeah, you, know, you find like, the hidden yeah. layers. And I, I, th- I think Kubrick just made a, an altogether more complex and beautiful puzzle of a movie than this, which is just sort of like laid out straightforward to you. Sure. You and I, I mean? And I think maybe that's what I... I'm missing here like yeah but but ultimately I don't think it was a bad movie Be- no it's not an unwatchable movie I I I think it's very interesting you called it procedural and while I I like the continuation of the first story I also like kind of the talk of like oh the the cold war tensions between these scientists and uh kind of the whole we got to convince the president to the politics, the politics, the, the, the yeah. political angles I thought were actually uh, interesting as well. Um, that's not what I meant by procedural procedural. I meant like the just sort of like every time they were doing something in space, it was like, we're going to explain what we're doing. Mm-hmm. And it's like, I understand like this is adapted from a book and it's probably laid out in the book. Exactly like and, this. And, and yeah. so he's like, okay, we're going to have this dialogue to explain to the audience what's going on. And, um, you know, I, I get it. It just sort of slowed the movie down a lot for me. It, and and 
I didn't I didn't understand the point of it so much. It's it's cool sciencey stuff, but it is very it it's taken up a lot of valuable screen time that could be used for better things. As Neil deGrasse Tyson has shown us one thing, it's that cool sciencey stuff does not make or break a good movie. That's like, true. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's a, it's a I mean And you can do cool sciencey stuff for sure. And just show it Just and show it, yeah. Very like you can explain enough to understand what's going on. Uh, they're slingshotting around Jupiter. It's it's fine. Yeah, uh, uh, there, there's shorter ways to do it. There's uh, cleaner ways to do it. I'll say. Yeah, and I think there were just also some points in here where I I just felt felt like the pacing was either moving along at a perfect pace or doing nothing. I didn't feel like the movie ever rushed, which was good, but like. It, it kicks along good, and then it just hits like a pocket where I really struggled to get through a couple of points in this movie. I, I think the middle part kind of really drags. It does. Um, but there's also some really interesting stuff, like the spacewalk where John Lithgow and uh, Max, the Russian astronaut, mm-hmm. were there like spacewalking over to the Discovery and and he's and like he's having a panic attack and 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 all of that. And I thought that was like a really well done. And they're sort of explaining the sciencey stuff of spacewalking and like, hey, adjust your oxygen levels and all that. Yeah. But that's also served like a super tense moment. We all sort of identified with with John Lithgow's character at that point. Like that's what I would be doing if I had to walk in space. And I mean, then he starts suffocating because he's used up all the air right. in he's, his he's suit. He's breathing CO or carbon dioxide. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, but it also like solidified the relationship between Max and uh, Lithgow's character. I keep forgetting his name, but like after Max dies, uh, John Lithgow wears that Max's hat for the rest of the movie. Like, yeah, and it you, just sort you of feel the connection like, there. You you get it, and and I understand they're making like these, uh, looking back, and after having sat through so many eighties Cold War themed movies, they're making these sort of tropey ideas about like, hey, once we start talking to the Russian characters. They're not so different from, you know, like, yeah. it's this very, like, this movie does so much of that. And I understand, like, for you, that's just, like, part of the movie. For me, I sat through a hundred million Cold War movies that did this thing. And so it just and reads some of them, very, very tropey. And some yes. of them did it better. Some of them did it better. Some of them did it worse. And I don't it, think this did it terribly. It's just sort of like, um, it's... It's just something, I. it's just nothing new to me. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, I'm and, not getting the emotion I'm supposed to. And I'm curious, because the Cold War was topical at the time of this movie. It, right. It, it was not when this book was written. So, I'm, I'm wondering... Uh, it probably was, actually. Was it? when I, I thought these books were written in, like, the early 1900s. No. No? No. No, Arthur C. Clarke wrote uh, 2001, uh, I want to say, he and Kubrick kind of worked, like, alongside each other. In, like, the, that's the, the 50s? The 60s. 60s, yeah. okay. This so, is 
20 years oh okay yeah i guess if he was writing the novel if he was writing them in in the in the 60s or even in the 50s if he had written it ahead of time yeah i mean in the 60s we've been through the cuban missile crisis and uh uh, uh, vietnam kicking up and you know like all 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 of this stuff but, I, I thought they were written a long time ago. His math is way off. 2001, you think we're... Regardless. Uh, <laughs> so stupid. Uh, well, but, let's let's talk about um, the idea that... Uh, I, I think the thing that has aged... Um, maybe it hasn't aged horribly, because we still have tension with Russia now. But in 2010, like there was no Soviet Union. Like, yeah. it, it, and, and these Th- kind of things true. where, uh, on, uh, honestly, I'm willing to overlook that compared to this is, this is where we're at in space travel in tw- 2001 and 2010. It, it was, it was, that's it, more mind boggling to me. Well, if you want to look at the, uh, the idea of the sixties, you know, like looking ahead at the space age. Mm-hmm. I, I think there was a lot of optimism about what it meant to be going into space and what it meant to be landing on the moon and and uh, what could what could come of that. You know what I mean? Sure, but oh wait, uh, two thousand ten was originally published in nineteen eighty two. Nineteen eighty two. Okay, yeah. hmm. so uh, much later, he must have. I mean, 2001 was published in uh, the 60s. That's interesting. So he waited 20 years, and there's two sequels after that. Uh, right. I looked up, so... 68 was he, he published. So yeah, he came back to this. All right. And um, I guess he had something new to say. Yeah, maybe he was speaking more of, of the Cold War uh, relations and, and things like that, because that mm-hmm. is the central theme of of this movie it this, is this movie is far more fo- focused on the cold war than i really expected it to be which is interesting <clears throat> it for, is interesting uh, how how high concept the first one is. right it didn't have to do the the first one doesn't have it all to do with the politics of earth um <clears throat> but it does look at uh technology as weapons like the very first, the opening, the caveman opening of 2001 is a caveman discovering that he can use a bone as a weapon to club his enemy to death. Yes. You know, and it is just sort of like a, uh, the theme of technology and the misuse of technology, technology used for violence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess maybe this is the next natural point to take that to. Is to just like okay, we'll explore the Cold War because that's that's what happened, right? And also, um, thinking about it, we we finally understand why how the technology was used incorrectly. Yeah, in this, and that's what led to the violence. Uh, the the bone is just a tool. Humanity can use it how it wants. Hal is just a tool. Humanity can use it as it wants. It, uh, let's talk about that because I have thoughts about this and I'm not sure where I come out on it about the explanation for Hal. Um, Ultimately, I think any explanation cheapens it 
a little bit. Okay, yeah, we're on the, we're in the same place on that then. Um, yeah, I, I get it. It it, it feels um, uh, not retroactive. What's uh, revisionist? It feels mm-hmm. it feels like oh, uh, we shouldn't have had him go crazy. Uh, how do we do this? Or maybe like it felt like we need him for the plot. Uh, to be like the emotional, uh, there has to be an emotional anchor for uh, Bob Balaban's character, and also he has to be able to fire the rocket. I don't, I don't know, but it just there was something about it that felt off in the same way that, um, I want to say in the same way that Dave it almost recontextualizes my reading of the end of 2001, but I I think maybe that just sort of adds to it. You know, it it embellishes that, you know what I mean? The ghost Mm -hmm. of Dave gives me a deeper understanding of the end of 2001. Whereas the reveal of Hal going crazy feels like it's revisionist. It feels like it's almost undoing part of 2001. Instead of adding to it. I disagree. Okay. I I feel like it, it changes the meaning of the original movie. Not great. But in context of this movie, I feel like it works because it's like, oh, we're, we don't trust Hal. We as the viewer, I, I mean, we're introduced to the guy who made Hal and he has... Right. Uh, Sal 4000 or whatever Sal is her his name. office computer. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a girl because she's basically his secretary. That's so right. So that's how we have to do it. Progression. I did love that it was that it was Sal 9000. <laughs> Tal 9000 and, you know, they're running out of names here. But uh, I, I feel like it builds this tension and we're like, we're like, oh... Hal's gonna go off his rail again, like right. something wrong is gonna happen with here. And I think it's related to the Cold War scare. I I think it's like, oh, we learned this thing, a deeper under that gave us a deeper understanding of what happened to Hal and that he didn't actually go crazy. It was user error right. in a way. In the same way that uh, this government that sent Hal messages that caused him to go rogue in the first movie, that same government is going to war and telling these scientists, don't work together. Uh, you're going to have to go to your own separate territories, your own spaceships. Hmm. Uh, and that would have ultimately doomed them because they would have died when Jupiter turned into a star. Turned into it, right. Uh, so, so I kind of think it works metaphorically. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I can, I get it. I get what they did. I just, it feels, it feels like sloppy writing in a certain way. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It, it, it feels, like I said, it feels like revisionist. You know, when you get to the sequel and they go, oh no, uh. It was this the whole time, or so-and-so was lying, or you know what I mean? But yeah, um, I think they also could have worked in because they had what what amounted to my favorite part of this movie. They had Ghost Dave, and Dave spoke to people through technology. 
through, mm-hmm. you know, TVs and and through Hal. I feel like it could have just been like, uh, we put Hal back online, but really it's Dave who's guiding, who's speaking to them. Dave, sure. Dave's firing the rockets. Dave, Dave is Hal now. Because uh, th- this is sort of almost how it recontextualized the end of it is not that humanity evolved and separated itself from technology. Uh, it's almost like technology and humanity became like a singularity, like became like a bigger than life spanning all time, all play. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Dave is all space and time now, you know? And I'd love that. I so much. If this had been more of Dave's, story i would have found this movie as a whole a lot more interesting because i loved i loved the parts of ghost dave it it is really cool to they see. were they were the weirdest parts they were the most fun parts and they were the most tied into what i care about in discovery we get like roy scheider is supposed he's like supposedly obsessed with what happened to discovery mm-hmm. but you don't ever really see him caring. You know what I mean? No, I mean, he has to be convinced to go on this journey in the first place. It's, right. There's a... I don't, and I like Roy Scheider. I think Roy Scheider is like one of the, one of the great, like, unsung character actors. Roy uh-huh. Scheider from Jaws. You know, he was in the middle of, I think he had probably just done the second Jaws movie. He did this. He's in the French Connection. He's in Marathon Man. Roy Scheider's great. He's a, one like a great '70s character actor, but yeah. he always kind of plays this guy. But in this one, like, like all of his obsession about the shark in the first two Jaws movies, that's what I wanted to see his obsession about. I wanted to see him play his obsession with the Discovery that passionately in this, and I just feel like he he wasn't. He got excited when like, oh, they found chlorophyll on um on IO or what you know, like wh- yeah. one of the moons. Sure. And he was intrigued and interested in that. But I didn't feel like he really his whole motivation is supposed to be I want to find out what happened to the discovery, but I never really got the sense that he cared. No, they they definitely didn't play it up enough. No, they played up different angles. He cared about other things, which I thought was fine. But I didn't really believe that he cared what happened to Dave. He yeah. didn't even really seem phased when he saw Ghost Dave changing ages right in front of his face. And he was just like, yeah, okay, whatever. I'll tell, I'll pass the message along. And it's like, dude, like, <laughs> here's a ghost of the guy that you've been wondering what happened to for nine years. Yeah. And, and you just are sort of like, eh, here he is. Okay. Okay, now I know. And it's just kind of like, this is, uh, yeah, this is bizarre. It underplayed all of it. Whereas I'm the viewer and I'm kind of blown away by this. You know, I'm blown away by Ghost Dave. Yeah. And but... and for me, it's just sort of like, why don't you care this much? You're there. You're there with him. It, it almost felt like he reacts when they find out what happened to Hal and it's treated like this big reveal. He reacts stronger than I... I was like, why does this guy care? He wasn't there. But yeah. that's like really the only time he he kind of shows his obsession with the mystery of what The mystery, happened. right. Why did... It almost becomes like they're, the movie is more interested in why Hal 
went crazy than what happened to the people on Discovery. Sure. You know what I mean? I think that's that's right. And I think that's partly sold by uh, Bob Balaban playing Dr. Curran. The inventor of Hal again? The, the inventor of Hal. I think he was great. Bob Balaban is awesome. Yeah, I, I and, think he and played a cool I was character. so surprised. Because uh, I didn't... I knew Roy Scheider was in this movie. And that's probably, I think, the only person I knew. And when the credits were going, it's like, John Lithgow. I'm like, oh, cool. And it's like, uh, Helen Mirren. Oh, great. Uh, Bob Balaban, who's, uh, again, one of the great character actors of all time. Uh, and I just... I'm like, oh, he's awesome. And he's so good in this movie. Mm-hmm. When he's... He has to say goodbye to Hal at the end, and he he has like a tear roll down his face that Hal's going to sacrifice himself for I, for them. I was like, this is like the the most genuine emotional moment is between this nerdy little man and the computer he built. Like, I really thought he was going to stay. With I thought him. he was too. I, I thought he was going to go out with Hal. Um, but I thought I think it was. Um, I think it was tragic either way. I th- mm-hmm. I, I I think that he, they trust and that they trusted Hal. I think that yep. I think that's why he had to let Hal do it. I think it, he had to show Hal, I trust you to to not right. screw us over. You know, he, he explained what was going on, yeah. and then Hal was like, "Okay, okay, I get it." Yeah, sure. No, it was really good. That was a that was a great moment in in this. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, to speak on Ghost Dave. Uh, it Please. makes me, th- this is a bit revisionist, but I feel like this movie would be a lot more engaging and we could feel more of that empty space if it was almost a horror movie. Not like full on. I, I don't want this to be a full on horror movie, but like a little bit of spook when they enter this abandoned you spaceship. Jump, you want jump scares? I don't want jump scares. Right. But, but I want mystery. I want... deeper into that because there's a little bit of creepy there's a little bit of like we don't really know what's happening but i feel like some dark surrealism i feel like played this up in watching this movie you need to watch event horizon because in watching this movie i uh, that was one of the realizations i had is somebody watched this movie and really liked it and made event horizon like because that's what event horizon is is this what? this haunted spaceship? Okay, they, they go yeah. to recover this spaceship where something went wrong, and they go in there, and essentially, like they're confronted with all their deepest fears as they go through this spaceship. Mm. It's okay. I've, some people really love Event Horizon. I think it's fine. I think it's an interesting concept that Sounds does cool doesn't execute super well in my opinion but i get it and a lot of it is because it's 90s cgi (laughs) but um it's a good concept and i think the concept the concept has to have been born here like it it is sure there's so much of the vibe like when they go in and then they like the russian astronaut takes his helmet off and then he like smells like the rotting it's rotting food and he's like, there's dead bodies here. And they, they yep. start freaking out. And it's like, there's kind of that creepy vibe. Is that what you're talking about? Yes. Like, I, yeah. I want that to be expanded. And and I feel like it would add to Ghost Dave. Because I feel like... What if Ghost Dave like had a sheet over his head and he had like Ooh. eye holes cut? Ooh, Roy yep. Scheider, I'm here for you. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> no, I I get it. It could have been a a darker 
a darker movie, not dark in like the impending doom of the Cold War way, but like a a more of a it would have put some suspense in it. Yes. I felt like there there was a lack of tension in a lot of this movie. Suspense is a good <clears> word because I I think that's what's missing here. I think so until the third act mm-hmm. when you do start to feel the tension of the Cold War. Ghost Dave is a more of a fixture. He doesn't. We don't see Dave till like halfway through the movie. Yeah, he he like, just randomly shows up talking yeah, to his dead talk, wife well, or his his, his living his wife, wife, his widow. Yeah, he's the dead one, which I thought was I thought that was a great moment, honestly, too. It was like he's like, oh, I hope he treats you well. See ya. Just like checking in on his on his wife, um, and then like his his mom in the mm-hmm. hospital. It's just all of these like. Like little, and that that moment felt like poltergeisty to me. Yeah, the, when, the when hairbrush they, and they show, ooh, things are moving. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, all that stuff I thought was was great, and that's when the movie finally kind of picked up for me. Yeah, uh, and he almost seems ominous, like he keeps something wonderful is going to happen, right? And I thought he's saying goodbye to all these people. I genuinely thought. Like Earth was going to be, gonna be the end of the world, right? And and these are the only people left is this crew of astronauts, right? Uh, but, but it something was, different. Happened. It was something bigger and, it, and more positive. I thought, yes, and and and, um, and I like that. I like that he was a little bit cryptic because I want my I want my beings who exist on a higher plane of existence to be a little. I want them to want me to come up to their level, challenge sure. me a little bit, you yeah. know, like that's, and so, yeah. Don't talk I, like a normal person. <laughs> yeah, like, You're better hey, than uh, that. Uh, that planet's going to implode. Uh, you might want to get, you might want to get the fuck out of here. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's, that's boring. Yeah. Come on, Dave. I can get that from this guy over here. Uh, no, Ghost Dave was, was great. And the most engaging part of this movie and we've talked about the Cold War, and we talked about Dave's widow. So I'm going to uh, segue that sideways into things that this movie thought would exist in 2010 that didn't exist in 2010. I can't wait. Okay, uh, Pan Am. Oh yeah. The future, uh, the the past is obsessed with Pan Am, and they think it's going to be way in the future. Pan Am is on billboards in Blade Runner. It is the airline to the moon in 2001, and it is still around in 2010 because we saw a commercial for it. That's right, and it's funny because uh, I, I didn't even know that that was still around in the 80s. Uh, boy, it would have maybe been on its last legs. Um, yeah. Yeah. It must have been. It was in this movie, but uh, yeah. Interesting. Uh, Pan Am, uh, and that commercial was watched on a 4-3 ratio TV. Uh, yep, which we, we never we all, changed. We all thought it was going to be a thing. Uh, the Soviet Union was no longer a thing. The Cold War, not really a thing. Uh, calculators. Roy Scheider had a, a calculator, was his doomsday device. He sure did. Um, and now, if he was walking around with a calculator on the space station, everyone would go, hey, why do you have a calculator? Just do it on your phone. Yeah. What's going on, man? Uh, And the last thing 
that didn't exist in 2010 that this movie thought would is Roy Scheider, who died in 2008. Wow, Dad. So. Wow. (laughs) It's pretty funny, though. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I I, I always, again, I, I don't like watching old movies and they go, oh, look, and people are like, look, it's a rotary, rotary phone. It's like, yes, that takes place. In, and I, de- you know, this isn't like terribly distracting, but it is just sort of like, <laughs> as I'm going through, I'm like, that didn't exist in 2010. That didn't exist in 2010. Right. <laughs> you know, like the Pan Am commercial gets Wrong. me every time. And Blade Runner also has like Atari everywhere, like like Atari ads on, sure, or on billboards. Yeah. And that, that just cracks we, me up. Cause I like, never evolved. That's the that. most like 1982 thing. And, and it's just sort of like, yeah, that's not a thing anymore. Um, but yeah, uh, that was just a, uh, little segue. Um, and now I don't know where I am. Cold war enemies becoming friends. Uh, did that we did that oh know? panicky astronauts man this mission put a lot of people in space who were not ready for space travel right there was like no prep uh john lithgow people. freaking out about going on a spacewalk and it's like why are you here <laughs> like this is part of the mission uh, you want to be you want somebody in here who can do that and then the the Russian astronaut, uh, the young woman, when they were doing like the slowdown maneuver, like she comes and like huddles in the uh, Roy Scheider's little aquarium bubble. Right, like she she's like terrified. She's not brave enough to like. And it's like you're an astronaut. Like what? You, like there's just a lot of there's a lot of astronauts who are panicky about being in space, and it's like that's what the job of being an astronaut is. Right, and very she, strange. She was a crew member too. Like yeah. she wasn't just like, oh, I'm this scientist that they really needed to yeah. come along. Like completely irrelevant, pointless. Very, very scene. strange. Yeah. Um. Uh. Did you, Did you want to talk about life on Europa? Because, sure. uh, <laughs> of course. So, I I find this interesting because basically. The plot of this movie, uh, what it really boils down to is these mysterious aliens that are behind the, uh, the black the monolith, um, monolith yep. uh, they are once again at it, but this time the humans are intercepting, like, like this is the next big step for this species on this moon of Europa, uh, around Jupiter like they've been presumably evolving and I guess they're they're being greeted by the monolith for their next big step um and and then their planet is turned into a star that will give birth to life and, a life in that corner yeah right. help them uh grow but I find it interesting that the one message uh that the the aliens or the gods or whoever controls these black monoliths is like this whole solar system's yours stay away from europa like they don't want you there i i find that interesting uh because hmm. it it makes me think that like this is some advanced 
like ultra advanced uh godlike species that is almost running an experiment like maybe they started life on earth and they also started life on europa and they're like we want europa to just evolve naturally they don't need your help earth they don't want your interference leave them alone sure that's kind of what i got from it yeah I don't know if that was the same as what you got. I didn't really uh, put a whole lot of thought into, like, why they said that. Other than, you know, hey, we're developing here. We don't need your interference. Please just leave us alone to do our thing here. Like, Mm -hmm. that sounds pretty reasonable to me. You know, if you buy a plot of land, you're nice to your neighbors. But, like, you know. (laughs) Still build a fence. Yeah. Like, it's... uh, yeah, boundaries are good. Everybody likes boundaries, right? That's fair. I I just, I don't think the things that were on Europa that attacked them were the same as the monolith. Hmm. Uh, no, but I think they come from the same source. I think the monolith is there to advance, uh, advance existence in general. Like, that's what we've seen of the monolith in every instance that we've seen one is it's it's pushed people a step forward right you know and uh you know maybe they're sent out to explore maybe they're sent out to uh push things forward maybe maybe that's it that you know hey we just became a sun because we had infinite monoliths uh show up on our surface uh this is too much for you stay away like it's it's too much. Sure. Like it, this would this would influence you too much. Like I don't know. Um, I did think it was it was an interesting kind of uh, idea of the like they send the probe down, uh, like like the probe satellite to investigate the surface, and it gets they get like a warning shot back. Yeah, you know, and I, I did think it was it, it was interesting. I didn't really put a lot of thought into it, honestly. But it, I thought it was interesting the idea of like this, this life force or whatever's there, sort of pushing them away. You know, like mm-hmm. like uh, the idea of aliens just like on the porch with a shotgun, just shooting in the air. Hey, get get the hell out of here! You know, like um, it was kind of funny to me. But like that whole scene, I thought was a great tense scene and a good cut back and forth, and then like. To have the tension broken with like this energy blast or whatever, uh, I thought was interesting. Mm-hmm. This movie, I I think, this kind of speaks to the fault of the movie, especially in comparison to two thousand one. The end of two thousand one is cryptic as hell. Uh, it doesn't give you a. It, it's ambiguous. It doesn't give you a hard answer on anything, but it makes you think about it. This movie did not compel me to try and figure out what that message meant. Mm-hmm. You know, I I spent days when I watched 2001 trying to figure out, get my head around the end of it. You know, what exactly does it mean? I know in broad strokes what it means, but what exactly does it mean? Because that movie compels me to think about it. That's why I think that movie is a legitimate piece of art. It, mm-hmm. it makes me want to uh, spend time with it and try and get to know it better. And figure it out. This movie did not compel me to do that. Sure. Y- you know what I mean? And I think that's 
that's where this movie falls short for me. And I, where I think, I think this movie kind of, it's a little bit of a disappointment after 2001, honestly. That, that's how I feel. I, I feel like there are still unanswered questions, but it's told to us in a straightforward way. Right. It's not, it's not told, it's, it's more of a, a blunt instrument. There's not a lot of like fine tuning right. in, in telling this story. And there's not a lot of levels to it. Ghost Dave is about as close as we get. I and Ghost Dave is awesome. Ghost Dave is great. I I do like how the ending is like uplifting. It's kind of like this it message yeah. of this is going to be a new world that isn't like the one that I grew up in. Uh, I, I my son will grow up in this world. I, I think that maybe the other reason that I wasn't really picking the end of this apart is because that message comes from Europa. You know, the, hey, stay away from here. And then you have Roy Scheider writing the letter to his son about, hey, this is a new dawn for humanity. This is a new era of everything. And it's a little trite when it's like, oh, both our governments did the right thing. And and everybody, you know, but like the idea behind that is like, oh, this gave a fresh perspective to everybody. And and everybody sort of reprioritized their lives and, and what it meant to be. A, a human being yeah and, and like and i thought that was a a good like you said positive note i think 2001 ends on a positive note in a very different way and 2010 lands on a positive note about having optimism from for the future like having you know he's hopeful in 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 the cold war people were not overly optimistic and there were a lot of people who were like you know I have this kid. What kind of world is my kid? Grow? You know, like a lot of people are now. I mean, it's when you have the threat of nukes over your head. People, people were like, there was a, like a lot of weird, like nihilism and stuff like that. So mm-hmm. in 1984 for this movie to come out and end on this optimistic note of like, I'm glad for the world. My son is going to grow up in like, that's what Roy Scheider is saying. I'm glad for the world. You're going to grow up in. You're going to remember, uh, uh, when the new son was born and you know, they're showing these two sons all over the world. I think that was great. I think that was a, a really uplifting ending to this movie without being melodramatic and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of cheesy about, you know what I mean? It, like it, it's, it's not en- sappy. It's the ending that like a story told in this time needed a, a story told in this time. Uh, about the theme, you know, about the themes of the Cold War and yes. stuff like that, where we we do see the crews come together and become friends, and uh, you know, at the same time, like the governments are having this huge tension, yeah. And then at the end, you see like, oh, the world kind of falls in line too. Um, it's 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 maybe a little tropey for the time, but it it is an uplifting ending. Uh, for this movie and i think the ending holds up pretty well uh cold war no i think it's just like you know this is a t- maybe it's the movie we all need to watch right now and go oh maybe maybe we will get a second son and, and we can save our planet and our our race and and yeah. you know and be good to each other they uh, they're having a buy two get one free deal at the sun at store. the sun store yeah uh, yeah i'll have to swing by and pick up another one 
Instead of sunglasses hut, it's Maybe just sun hut. Sun hut. <laughs> Maybe if we pool our money, we can buy a couple more That's suns. Right. All all the world governments. But, just, uh, uh, yeah, I thought it was all right. Um, the last thing I want to point out is uh, the, the cinematography. I, I thought the cinematography of this movie was interesting. Not so much in space. I'm going to point out the very beginning of this movie when they're on Earth. On the stairs? Uh, there's the stairs. There is... Uh, he's talking to the like national security advisor in front of the White House. Yep. Uh, and there's the scene where he's training to go into space. Uh, and he's like running with his son. All these are like these big, wide shots. And people are talking. And you can kind of barely see the people. It's just like this big wide shot. It's such an interesting shot to not show the people talking, you know, and they would cut in on them every once in a while and then cut back to this wide shot and just sort of like have this, yeah, here's the setting and here's the conversation taking place. You'll hear it, but you won't really see them talking or you won't see them up close. You'll see these like small people. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting choice. I thought it was a really interesting choice and I thought it was, Somehow more interesting than a lot of the stuff shot in space. Some of it looked good. The like the planets looked good. Mm-hmm. I didn't think they was they were shot in really an interesting way. Does that make sense? Yeah, it was a little basic, and also just yeah. like inside the spaceships, like inside the spaceships was a little was a lot of people talking, and I I did think the control room was cool with. Uh... They had, like, the buttons and different rows mm-hmm. of color. Yeah. I thought that was a nice, neat kind of background. It was, it was good. Uh, it, it was good production design on that on that set. And, of course, on the Discovery, you know, it's kind of like... I, th- I think they did a good job of, like... I don't know if those sets were still around. I imagine I, I they recreated those those sets. And, you know... It's pre- it's a pretty sterile environment. And the one thing that I really did like in space was like the gateway they made between the two ships. Oh, yeah. Like the, the zip line, you know, mm-hmm. with the triangles. And when they would open the hatch and you just had that, that row see, going yeah, down there. Going I thought deeper. that was cool. I, I like that. I like that a lot. But really, it was a lot of the Earth cinematography, a lot of the like real pedestrian stuff. I'm like, this is... This is shot in a really interesting way. I, I just, I, I kind of couldn't get my head around that where I'm like, there's not a lot happening, uh, but there's some really interesting uh, choices being made by the director of photography here. They're, they're giving me something to look at yeah. while all this talking's going yeah. on. Yeah. There's a, the, when they go to Roy Scheider's house and the first thing we see is like the dolphins oh, and then like so weird. the the camera follows them. Like that's how they bring us into the house is an underwater shot that follows these dolphins up to the surface of the pool. And boom, we're inside the, we're inside the, the, uh, the Floyd house Mm -hmm. with the family having sitting down for dinner. And I'm just like, what an interesting way to bring me into a scene. Yeah, and then we follow the little boy into the dining into room. Into the dining and room, and, you know, she's a marine biologist, and that's why there's dolphins here. You mm-hmm. did, Yeah, in 2010, you'll have dolphins in your home. Uh, if, if they're for work. In 2010, dolphins don't exist anymore. <laughs> that's right. They left the planet, as Douglas Adams taught us. 
Correct. Um, but uh, yeah, just I, I think there's some really interesting choices made. And ironically, I think the most interesting uh, choices were all in the Earth in the Earth scenes. Yeah, I, I just I thought that was really they really developed that. They, they really did. They they really made some some cool choices that I liked a lot. So, yeah. Oh, well, what about you? You got anything else? I that's really all I have for this movie. I it's it's not a shallow movie by any means. No, but it's not as deep a well as two thousand one. I I didn't get the same thing, and maybe I don't think it's unfair to compare a sequel. To the predecessor. I mean, they're part of the same thing. But clearly these were made by two different teams of people. Yes. Outside of being based on Arthur Clarke's source material. Um, it just shows. And they're made in two, di- two very different times. Uh, it, it, so they kind of read as, as different movies. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I really tried not to hold it, hold it against like, 2001 you know you try not to hold that i want to judge this movie on its own merit and i think even on its own merit this movie came up a little bit short for me i think it's interesting enough to check out i don't think this is a unwatchable horrible movie uh it's just kind of a slog sometimes i think there's some really interesting things going on here and i for me, I think maybe that's some of the most disappointing stuff is there was some stuff that really delivered that I thought was interesting and some stuff that was just kind of wasted potential. I, I think that's fair. Uh, I Would you I, recommend somebody watch this movie? I would, yeah. Yeah. I'd but say I, if you like 2001, yeah. watch this. If you didn't like 2001, you're not going to like this. Which... I, but why am I talking to someone who doesn't like 2001? You know, that's a really good point. I think that's where you cut the conversation off and you just go, Bye. See ya. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dave. I can't let you into my house. <laughs> Eject airlock. <laughs> you're, just, you're just done with it. I am also uh, going to throw out that apparently... Uh, so there are four books in this series. There are. Uh, the fourth book... Uh, the third book is Return to Europa Oz. or something. Return it's, to Oz. That's right. Yeah. It, it's like 2065 or something. Uh, the last book is 3001. Mm. Uh, the final Odyssey. Uh, and that was made into a miniseries. Really? Uh, in like 2014 or something. Really? Uh, so I don't know if it's any good, but I, uh, I did see that in researching I'm not going to commit this. us, but I think maybe we should put some effort into tracking that down. I, I do kind of want to check that out because yeah. it's another adaption that is made by a whole different team of sure. people. And will also be very different than these two movies. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna look for that because that could uh, there's some weird TV stuff that's hard to find like on video anywhere. But yeah. like if we can find that, I want because like I also want to track down like the, uh, they made a Dune miniseries in like around the year 2000. I think it might have been Sci-Fi Channel or somebody. It's like I want to track that down too. Oh, Sci-Fi Channel did this this miniseries oh really on 3000 oh cool so yeah sharktopus shows up <laughs> in it but, oh yeah um yeah there's some interesting miniseries i do want to track down and uh i'm gonna put that one on the list 
yeah. that can be really fun to watch too. I think so. And just just to compare, um, but yeah, that's really interesting. Cool. Well, there you have it. Two thousand ten, the year we make contact, and uh, it sure was a movie. That definitely was a film. That definitely was. Um, let's move on to shout outs. Oz, what do you got this year? All right. Or this week. Uh, Sorry. This is my only shout out this year. No, um, I'm shouting out a musical called Anne Juliet. Uh, this is a retelling of Romeo and Juliet, which has never been done before. Oh, cool. Uh, <laughs> no, but it is a fun take on it i i saw this in canada uh this is a show that's been a fun take on the teen suicide drama oh tell me more uh okay (laughs) this is more about shakespeare himself um and kind of the struggles he had while writing this but it's in a comedic tone okay uh it's kind of a revisionist history of what could have been what this story could represent um and how it kind of falls flat. It's almost a critique of Romeo and Juliet, the actual play. Uh, so I find it to be really interesting. And also, it's very funny. Um, it originally aired... Uh, it was in. It was a London production. Uh, and now it's going pretty much worldwide, making its way to Broadway. It's going to go to Broadway soon. And... They just put out the London cast recording uh, as an album. So I, I kind of wanted to shout that out because I've been listening to it and I think it's pretty good. So if you're interested in Shakespeare or Romeo and Juliet, try checking that out. All right. What and you... Juliet. Nice. And Juliet. What do you got? I got, uh, I've shouted this channel out before. It's Movies with Mikey on the Film Joy uh, YouTube channel. Um, this is a specific video in that series, and it's called Wait. It's about McCarthyism, and it is about Frank Herbert, uh, the writer of Dune. Um, and the it sort of like documents the sort of a breakdown of the story. It documents the making of the, you know, everything that led up to the David Lynch movie sort of the bigger ideas of the movie. And it gets into the fact that Frank Herbert was uh cousin relate he was related to, I think they were cousins, uh Senator Joseph McCarthy, who did the communist witch hunt the in in the fifties. And the idea mm. of, you know, crushing art with fascism and things like that, and how that ran up against, you know, uh, so is that is is there stuff like that in Dune? Because I'm thinking, and I feel like Dune is progressive in the way that it shows how, like, I mean, like this this royal family basically has no say because the government was like, "You're gonna go here, so go here," and they're afraid to speak out. Sure, no, like I think I think Dune. Feels I'm I'm a, I'm in the middle of reading Dune right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and no, I think Dune is a very progressive. I'm saying they were on two sides of the issue. They were, you know, Frank Herbert was not on McCarthy's side. Oh, okay. it, it was about the conflict that they had that they were, you know, were uh, related, and you know, 
I, I that, assumed that, you were going to tell me. Oh, but, this but is apparently, a like, there's there. That's part of the the angle of of Dune. I've not necessarily picked up on the on the you know communist witch hunt part of it, but the oppressive government and mm-hmm. and in the you know just the fascist dictatorships and uh yeah there's there's a lot going on in that novel and i'm sure there are many many layers to it but um that was all re- it's all really interesting and uh it, it's an interesting look at like the david lynch uh production of it and just sort of like how that went how it went right and how it went wrong and uh i don't know it's it's a pretty interesting video i just i recommend checking it out especially if you're mm-hmm. like huge into dune in the last year like you and i have been. <laughs> but, i don't know um, what you're talking about uh it, it's an interesting angle on the uh on the story yeah that does sound another layer to sure. the mystery uh yeah i don't i don't i don't really know anything about frank herbert as a as a person hmm. uh so to me that was really interesting i'm like oh wow it's also weird when you hear like that fascists like joseph mccarthy you know like have families Right. You know, like when, when you hear about stuff like that, when you hear that, like Mitch McConnell has a wife, I'm like, oh, you know, like wait, people can put up with you. Like, are you serious? <laughs> like, you're such a twisted troll. How do you, how do you do that? Like, I mean, ben, it's always weird. Yeah. Then again, Ben Shapiro's cousin is uh, Matilda. So <laughs> wait, what? Yeah. The actress from, who plays the little girl from Matilda. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Wait, weird. Huh. So he has a family too. Who it's, knew? It's all, it's all strange to me. Really I mean, is. you understand, like, oh, yeah, you are people, kind of. Mm. Like, yeah. Interesting. It's always odd to me. That's it, all I'm saying. It is a weird realization. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, uh, that's it for this week. Uh, those links will be in the show notes. And we want to thank you for listening to this uh, disjointed episode of The Picture Show with Austin and Phil Rude. If you enjoy our show, please leave a review on your podcatcher of choice. It helps our visibility. It helps us grow the show. That's right. Another way to help us grow is to tell a friend. If a friend's maybe listen to our show and they, they're they like, mm, I'm not sure. It's clearly a misunderstanding. They've been lied to by the government and they have conflicting orders. So reprogram them uh, to be able to like our show and uh, we'll gain another listener. Shut your friend down. Then bring in Bob Balaban to restart, reboot mm-hmm. everything. Off and then on again. You know, that is what they did with Hal. It's 100% what he, they, they did. They did the IT crowd thing where they're like, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Hal is ma- malfunctioning. Have you tried turning him off and on again? Like, that is 100% how they rebooted it. And you know what? It, it worked. worked. It worked. It really did. Never, never doubt Moss. Austin, uh, it's your movie next week. What is next on our sci-fi yes, roster? Yes, it is. I have the honor of bringing us the movie Arrival. Arrival. Speaking of Dune. So excited. Danny Villeneuve. That's uh, right. Uh, Arrival. Great One of the great greatest movie. sci-fi directors ever. I will say that. I will stand by wow. it. Well, we'll talk about that next week. Um I'm not dis. It's not me disagreeing with you. I'm just saying. I, I, like, I gave a very intense we'll, look there. Like, we'll uh, we'll have a, a, a. That's that's a lot to throw at. I can't even digest that right now. <laughs> I'm just saying we'll we'll talk about that. Just it, know that we're covering Arrival. Arrival's great. Watch it, please. Please uh, do. There's a lot of layers to that one, and I can't wait to get into them with you. Uh, social media. What do you got, Austin? 
Twitter. Uh, look me up at Austin and Rude and The Who Review. And I am at Phil Rude on Twitter, at Phil Rude 75 on Instagram, and ko-fi.com slash Phil Rude. Buy me a coffee, buy yourself a book, uh, or just say hi. You want to read the credits? Sure. We did it all ourselves. There you have it. We'll see you next time on The Picture Show. See ya. time they say uh david bowman by the way i want to be david bowie right he's in this movie he is ziggy stardust that's right he's spaceman he's not he's not the spaceman he's a spaceman he's a ziggy stardust yeah Yeah. he's the star man star man see you know i do know